Hey man, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You got some information, thoughts, or views that you want the world to hear? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? Man, the big question though was how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of those questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. So best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with a great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. One of the benefits that I really love about doing my podcast with Anchor is the ability to get my podcast on multiple platforms with the click of a button. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm backward slash start. Go to anchor.fm slash start. One more time for the people in the back. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me in a diverse community of podcasters already using anchor that's anchor.fm slash start i can't wait to hear your podcast till next time every time i come on man i always want to hum some some sort of theme song from some old sitcom uh i don't know which one that was just now but ladies and gentlemen i want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of the page turners book study with your host big l um a little bit of housekeeping man i want to thank you guys first and foremost man uh, for tuning in for sharing this broadcast man uh people been hitting me up asking me questions about the book ask me about dr cone um criticizing some things um but it's been great great dialogue uh and i'm excited i'm excited about this book man for those who may be tuning in for the first time the book that we are doing the book study on now is Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cone. Many will call him the father of black liberation theology. This book right here was written in 1969. And so far, man, uh, we're currently in chapter one. Uh not sure how long I'm going to go tonight. I try to keep these right around 30 minutes, man. I try to be mindful of everyone's time. Uh, I know we're all kind of busy, man. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to abuse that. So I try to hit you with, with 30 good minutes, man, but we'll see. I would like to be able to finish up chapter one tonight. Uh, so the next broadcast, we can actually begin digging into chapter two. Um, Please, like I said, man, uh, wherever you may listen to this podcast, we are on all 
multiple podcast platforms from iTunes to Stitcher to Google, uh, or you can listen at the parent site here on Anchor. Uh, the actual website here at Anchor is anchor.fm uh, forward slash the forum. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I got caught up there. I was trying to find my page in the, in the book and multitask at the same time. Please forgive me. All right, man. Uh, trying to think there was anything else. No, no. We're still in chapter one. Looking to finish up chapter one tonight, hopefully. We'll see. But this particular section of chapter one is titled, how does black power relate to white guilt? How does black power relate to white guilt? And the text reads as follows. When white do-gooders are confronted with the style of black power, realizing that black people really place them in the same category with the George Wallace's, they react defensively saying, it's not my fault or I'm not responsible. Sometimes they continue by suggesting that their town, because of their unselfish involvement in civil rights, is better or less racist than others. There are two things to be said here. First, there are no degrees of human freedom or human dignity. Either a man respects another as a person or he does not. To be sure, there may be different manifestations of inhumanity, but that is besides the point. The major question is, is the black man in white society a thou or an it. Fanon puts it this way, a given society is racist or it is not. Statements, for example, that the north of France is more racist than the south, that racism is the work of the underlings and hence in no way involves a ruling class, that France is one of the less racist countries in the world are the product of men incapable of straight thinking. Racism then biologically is analogous to pregnancy. Either she is or she's not. Or like the Christian doctrine of sin, one is or is not in sin. There are no meaningful in-between relevant to the fact and should be said. Here's a good part right here. Man, pay attention to this piece right here. Racism is so embedded in the heart of American society that few, if any whites, can free themselves from it. So it is time for whites to recognize that fact for what it is and proceed from there. Who really can take it upon themselves to try to ascertain in what ways one kind of inhumane behavior differs from another, especially if one is direct participant? Is there, in truth, any difference between one races or another? Do not all of them show the same collapse, the same bankruptcy of man? Second, all white men are responsible for white oppression. It is much too easy to say racism is not my fault or I'm not responsible for the country's inhumanity to the black man. And family, listen to that part right there, man. So so often when you have conversations with, with white people about racism, this is for you people, you know, you folk out there who actually do have conversations with white people about racism, white supremacy. Your boy Big L does not. I do not have conversations with white people about racism and white supremacy. I, I don't do it. Why? Because too often, more often than not, 
It's a bunch of BS that usually comes out of their mouth. And I don't have the, the, the right makeup and mindset. And I'm far too intelligent to understand that white people have the amazing ability to hide their racism when it's confronted with it by using so many different fraudulent and false fallacies and, and just a bunch of nonsense. Or they want to climb into their white fragility bag and, and get really, really defensive about it. I don't do it. I, and I, I don't understand how many of you do it. Because for one, if if and when I do do it, I have zero, zero, zero tolerance for white tears. I fill them up in a glass, add some Kool-Aid and a bunch of sugar, and I make drinks out of white tears. I don't have the mindset to be sitting back trying to listen to white people come up with different excuses and reasoning about white supremacy and racism unless they are coming up to me and saying, you know what, I'm a racist, and I don't like it, and I want to fight white supremacy. At which point in time, then they can ask me, what do I think? But if they're not going to acknowledge it, if they're going to give some old foolishness, real foolish response. And I've had countless conversations, man, with white Christian brethren face to face over coffee, over dinner, and listen to them, you know, say things like, you know, how how tragic it is that racism is and how they desire to see the church just, you know, fight against it. And my response is, so fight against it. Why am I here? It's not my fight. I'm fighting against white supremacy. And unfortunately, and fortunately for you, more times than not, you're on the side of white supremacy. But this whole notion, man, of racial reconciliation, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to even go into that right now. That's just, uh, that's, yeah. Let me continue. And the text reads, the American white man has always had an easy conscience. Let me say that again, because that fully backs up exactly what I was stating just now. The American white man has always had an easy conscience. But insofar as white do-gooders tolerate and sponsor racism in their educational institutions, their political, economic, social structures, their churches, and in every other aspect of American life, they are directly responsible for racism. Let me read that again for you, because I want to be clear. This is, again, this book was written in 1969. Nothing has changed. But insofar as white do-gooders tolerate, yeah, it's a whole lot of your white Christian brethren out there, man, who, who tolerate. And if you tolerate racism as a white person, you are participating in racism. But insofar as white do-gooders tolerate and sponsor racism in their educational institutions, their schools, their classrooms, their political, man, we see the political, who, who's responsible directly for that knucklehead who's in the White, off, white House right now? White evangelical Christians, economic, white Christian do-gooders, white liberals, white evangelicals. If you want to fight against white supremacy, racism and you want to to do some sort of racial reconciliation open up your checkbook open up your checkbook 
start handing out some funds. Start paying some poor folks bills. Start funding some, some of the initiatives of black folks who are fighting against white supremacy. If your money is not backing up your mouth, you ain't saying nothing. Social structures, their churches, all these churches, man, running around here with these multicultural, trying to be multicultural denominations. You're multicultural by population only. Your culture is still has a wretched funk and stink of whiteness. That's why it's so easy for so many of y'all to hop and, you know, to get all your money to go up to these, these other countries of color to do missionary trips. When most of your, your, your churches, if you really want to do a missionary trip, would be to stay inside of your church and knock down the white theology that is permeating all throughout the, your churches every Sunday. Start there. Don't, don't take that the, the same white Jesus that you claim to be against to these foreign countries, quote unquote, and allow your, 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 your whiteness to permeate there. Nah, man, keep that. And the text reads, It is a cold, hard fact that the many flagrant forms of racial injustice north and south could not exist without their white acquiescence. And that's the key. Racism cannot, it would not continue to be as strong as it is without white participation. And everybody's always wants to yell and scream about systematic racism. Oh, no, no. It's all these different types of racism. You got the personal racism. You got the structural. You have. No, 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 no. You have white supremacy is what you have. You have white supremacy. And if you're going to use systemic as your your labeling, as your phrasing, remember this. You can't have a system without human operators. You can't have it. Every system has humans who are operating and propelling and making that system work. Back to the text. If whites are honest in their analysis of the moral state of the society, they know that all are responsible. Racism is a possible is possible because whites are indifferent to suffering and patient with cruelty. Carl Jasper's description on metaphysical guilt is pertinent here, and it reads, There exists among men, because there are men, a solidarity through which each shares responsible for every injustice and every wrong committed in the world, especially for crimes that are committed in, this, in his presence, or of which he cannot be ignorant. If I do not do whatever I can to prevent them, I am an accomplice to them. If I have not risked my life in order to prevent the murder of another man, if I have stood silent, I feel guilty in a sense that cannot in any adequate fashion be understood juridically, sir, or politically or morally, that I am still alive after such time, such things have been done weighs on me as guilt that cannot be expedited. In contrast, injustice anywhere strikes a massive sense of note in the souls of black folks because they know that it means to be treated as a thing. That is why Fanon says, anti-Semitism hits me head on. I'm enraged. I am bled white by an appalling battle. I am deprived of the possibility of being man. 
I cannot disassociate myself from the future that's proposed for my brother. Yes, when blacks in Chicago hear about blacks being lynched in Mississippi, they are enraged. When they heard about Martin Luther King's death, they burned, they looted, they got whitey. In fact, when blacks hear about any injustice, whether it's committed against black or white, blacks know that their existence is being stripped of its meaning. When I turn on my radio, when I hear that Negroes have been lynched in America, I say that we have been lied to. Hitler is not dead. When I turn on my radio, when I learn that Jews have been insulted, mistreated, persecuted, I say that we have been lied to. Hitler is not dead. When I finally turn on my radio and hear that African Africa forced labor has been inaugurated and legalized, I say that we have been lied to. Hitler is not dead. White America's attempt to free itself of responsibility for the black man's inhumane condition is nothing but a pro protective device to ease her guilt. Whites have to convince themselves that they are not responsible. Whites have to convince themselves that they are not responsible. That is why social scientists prefer to remain detached in their investigations of racial justice. It is less painful to be uninvolved. White Americans do not dare to know that blacks are beaten at, at will by policemen as a means of protecting the latter's ego superiority as well that of the larger white middle class. For to know it is to be responsible. To know it is to understand why blacks loot and riot at what seems slight provocation. Therefore, they must rep have reports to explain the disenchantment of blacks with white democracy so they can be surprised. They must believe that blacks are in poverty because they are lazy or because they are inferior. They must believe that blacks are in poverty because they are lazy or because they are inferior. Huh. I don't think we realize, man, what poverty actually looks like in this country. Since the media does so much dressing up of different different celebrities. We don't have a true grasp on what poverty looks like, man. I'm going to read this part again because I think this was telling. Therefore, they must have reports to explain the disenchantment of blacks with white democracy. It's not just the fact they have reports that we're disenchanted, the disenchantment of this country. It's that whenever we are victims of white terrorism, the media, the white driven media, oftentimes, most times, all the time, because it ain't too many non-white media platforms out there, paint us as deserving whatever violence we have met at the hands of white terrorism. I can run down a list of, of blacks or quote-unquote people of color who have been victimized by white supremacy in this country and with each example show you how their life was somehow turned to a point and shown and exposed and, and manipulated to a point where they look like and were portrayed as if they deserve the violence. 
We saw it with Trayvon. We saw it with Tamir. We saw it with Sandra. We saw it with Mike Brown. We saw it with Eric Gardner. We saw it with Philando. We saw it with Naya here recently. Standard operating procedure versus white supremacy, man. And the text continues. Yes, they must believe that everything is basically all right. Black power punctuates those fragile lies declaring to white America the pitiless indictment of Francis Jensen. If you succeed in keeping yourself unsullied, it's because others dirty themselves in your place. You hire thugs and balancing the accounts, and it is you who are the real criminals. For without you, without your blind indifference, such men can never carry out deeds that damn you as much as they shame those men. <laughs> Dr. James Cohen, I thank you, sir. I thank you for this book, man. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to finish this chapter in this particular session. So uh, we're going to move on to the next section of chapter one. This last section of chapter one, actually the next to the last chapter of, of next to the last section, excuse me, this section of chapter one that we're going to read is called Black Power and the White Liberal. And before we even read the text, I want to tell you that the white liberal is the most dangerous white person on the planet. White liberals are the most dangerous white people on the planet. And the text reads, in time of war, men want to know who the enemy is, who is for me and who is against me. That is the question. The asserting of black freedom in America has always meant war. When blacks retreat and accept their dehumanized place in white society, the conflict ceases. But when blacks rise up in their freedom, whites show their racism. In reality, then, accommodation or protest seems to be the only option open to a black man. Man, in reality, then accommodation, also known as integration or assimilation or protest, maximizing segregation or separation, seems to be the only option open to black men. For 300 years, he accommodated, thereby giving credence to his own enslavement. Black power means that he will no longer accommodate that he will no longer tolerate white excuses for enslavement, that he will no longer be guided by the oppressor's understanding of justice, liberty, freedom, or the methods to be used in attaining them. He recognizes the difference between theoretical equality and great factual inequalities. He will not sit by and wait for the white man's love to be extended to his black brother. He will protest violently, if need be, on behalf of absolute and immediate emancipation. Black power means that black people will cease trying to articulate rationally the political advantages and moral whiteness of human freedom since the dignity of man is self-evident. 
religious, philosophical, political truth without which human commonality is impossible. Black power means that black people will cease trying to articulate rationally and the political, man, we are constantly trying to pipe down, keep down, tamper down our emotions, our thoughts, because we don't want to offend. We search so hard to try to say it the right way. But there's time out for that. There's, there's, there's no room for that anymore. You must be absolutely unapologetic in your truth. Back to the text. When one group breaks the covenant of truth and assumes an exclusive role in defining the basis of human relationship, that group plants seeds of rebellion. Black power means that blacks are prepared to accept the challenge and with it the necessity of distinguishing friends from enemies. It is in this situation that the liberal white is caught. We have alluded to him earlier, but now we intend to take a closer look at his involvement in this war for freedom. To be sure, as Lauren Miller says, there are liberals and liberals, ranging from left to right, but there are certain characteristics identifiable in terms of attitudes and beliefs. Simply stated, liberalism contemplates the ultimate elimination of all racial distinctions in every phase of American life through an orderly step-by-step -step process adjusted to resistance and aimed at overcoming such resistance. In the field of constitutional law, the classic liberal position exemplified in the Supreme Court's all-deliberate speed formula of school segregation cases requires and rationalizes Negro accommodations to and acquiescence in disabilities imposed because of race and is violation of the fundamental law. The liberal then in one who sees both sides of the issue <laughs> and shies away from the extremism in any form. He wants to change the heart of the racism without ceasing to be his friend. He wants progress without conflict. That is your white evangelical Christians today. There's your white liberals today. That's, that's your so-called racial reconciliation today. They want change the heart of the racism without ceasing to be his friend. They want progress without conflict. Therefore, when he sees blacks engaging in civil disobedience and demanding freedom now, he is disturbed. Black people know who the enemy is, and they are forcing the liberal to take sides. But the liberal wants to be a friend. That is, enjoy the rights and privileges pertaining to whiteness and also work for the Negro. He wants change without risk, victory without blood. You're white allies, these so-called white allies, man. Are they trying to partially, peacefully, quietly keep a piece of their whiteness when they're standing behind by you on the front lines, quote-unquote, fighting white supremacy? Are they using their whiteness as a way of fighting white supremacy? And the text continues. The liberal white man is a strange creature. He verbalizes the right thing. He intellectualizes on the racial problems beautifully. He roundly denounces racist conservatives and moderate liberals. 
Sometimes in rare moments and behind closed doors, he will even defend Rap Brown or Stokely Carmichael. Or he may go so far as to take this statement. I will let my daughter marry one. And this is supposed to be the absolute evidence that he is racist, raceless. Now I'm telling you, a lot of white people, a lot of your white allies will stand with you. They'll, they'll speak up for you, quote unquote, but try to date their daughter. Try to date their sister. And then you can see. <laughs> Woo. And the text continues. But he is still white to the very core of his being. What he fails to realize is that there is no place for him in this war of survival. Blacks do not want his patronizing, condescending words of sympathy. They do not need his concern, his love, his money. It is that which dehumanizes. It is that which enslaves. Freedom is what happens to a man on the inside. It is what happens to a man's being. It has nothing to do with voting, marching, picketing, or rioting. Though all may be manifestations of it, no man can give me freedom or help me get it. A man is free when he can determine the style of his existence in an absurd world. A man is free when he sees himself for what he is and not as others define him. He is free when he determines the limits of his existence. And in this sense is right. Man is freedom or better yet, man is condemned to be free. A man is free when he accepts the responsibility for his own acts and know they are that they involve not merely himself, but all men. No one can give or help get freedom in that sense. In this picture, the liberal can find no place. His favorite question when back against the wall is, what can I do? One is tempted to reply as Malcolm X did to the white girl who asked the same question. Nothing. What the liberal really means is, what can I do and still receive the same privileges as other whites? And this is the key, be liked by the Negroes. Indeed, the only answer is nothing. However, there are places in black power picture for radicals, that is for men, white or black, who are prepared to risk their life for freedom. There are places for the John Browns, men who hate evil and refuse to tolerate it anywhere. <laughs> this will be the last section, man, of chapter one. The last section of chapter one is titled Black Power, Hope or Despair. White racism is a disease. No excuse can be made for it. We blacks can only oppose it with every ounce of humanity we have. When black children die of rat bites and black men suffer because meaning has been set from their existence and black women weep because family stability is gone, how can anybody appeal to reason? Human life is at stake. In this regard, black people are no different from other people. Men fight back. They grab for the last thread of hope. Black power then is an expression of hope, not hope that whites will change the structure of oppression, but hope in the humanity of black people. If there is any expression of despair in black power, it is despair regarding white intentions, white promises to change the oppressive structures. Black people now know that freedom is not a gift from white society, but is rather the self-affirmation of one's existence as a person, a person with a certain innate rights to say no and yes despite the consequences. It is difficult for men who have not known suffering to understand this experience. 
That is why many concerned persons point out the futility of black futility of black rebellion by drawing a contrast between the present conditions of blacks in the ghetto and the circumstances of other revolutionaries in the past. The argument of these people runs like this. Revolutions depend on cohesion, discipline, stability, and a sense of stake in society. The ghetto, by contrast, is relatively incohesive, unorganized, unstable, and numerically too small to be effective. Therefore, rebellion for the black man can only mean extermination genocide. Moreover, fact one is that many poor blacks being poor so long have become accustomed to slavery, feeling any form of black rebellion is useless. And fact two, that the black bourgeoisie, having tasted the riches of white society, do not want to jeopardize their place in the structure. Man, that's one of the reasons why you don't see a whole lot of black athletes, black celebrities, black millionaires step out and speak up on racism and white supremacy. <laughs> Ooh. Man, once they get a taste of that riches, that they get a little taste of the riches, they get a little taste of the the the, the what they perceive as the, the the goodness of white presence and white validation. Black elite ain't giving that up. They have sold us out on many occasions and will sell us out on many occasions. And the text continues. The analysis is essentially correct, but no point out. But to point out the futility of black rebellion is to miss the point. Black people know that they compromise less than 12% of the total American population are, and, and are proportionally much weaker with respect to economic, political, and military power. And black radicals know that they represent a minority within the black community. But having tasted freedom through an identification with God's intention for humanity, they will stop at nothing in expressing their taste for white power. To be sure, they may be a minority in the black community, but truth, despite democracy, can never be measured by numbers. Man, I know what I state about white supremacy. I know what I state is 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 a small representation of black thought. I know it. I know it in the, the city I live right now in, in 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 Pennsylvania. This city right now, my pro-black radical wanting to stand up against the racist colonial thinking of uh, so many of the people here in this particular city, I'm the minority there. I know it, but that's all right. Truth must, may, must go forth. And the text reads, truth is that which places a man in touch with the real. Once a man find it, finds it, he is prepared to give, give all for the rebellion in the cities and it's not a conscious organized attempt for black people to take over. It is an attempt to say yes to truth, no to untruth, even in death. The question then is not whether black people are prepared to die. The riots testify to that. But whether whites are prepared to kill them. Unfortunately, it seems like that answer has been given through the riots as well. But this willingness of black people to die is not despair. It is hope. Not in white people, but in their own dignity grounded in God himself. This willingness to die for human dignity is not novel. Indeed, it stands at the very heart of Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of chapter one. 
Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cone. On our next episode, ladies and gentlemen, family and friends, <laughs> critics, <laughs> haters, <laughs> on the next episode, we will be beginning chapter two, chapter two. Chapter two is titled The Gospel of Jesus, Black People and Black Power. The Gospel of Jesus, Black People and Black Power. It is your boy Big L signing off with another episode of Black Theology, Black Power Book Study. You heard it right here, man. You will hear it right here on the Page Turners Podcast. I appreciate y'all, man. Till next time.